Now I'm I'm aware that um, that these are, or many of these at least, are quite unfamiliar ideas in um, uh, for for many of many many people, uh, m- m- maybe even many Dharma people, and uh, maybe in the culture. Um, <clears throat> so I want to just say something about um, about that. Uh, it's a lot easier to teach uh, Dharma, um, <clears throat> or rather there's no objection, which makes it easier, um, when we teach Dharma or present something as Dharma, um, when, uh, in the cases where we mix in all kinds of assumptions or frames of reference or <clears throat> conceptual bases or conceptual biases as well, um, as long as they're well established in um, Western modernist culture and assumed to be true by that culture. Um, so when you mix those kind of ideas in um, and assumptions in and, and, and package it all as, quote, Dharma, um, for instance, neuroscience or um, some of the ideas from um, modern psychotherapy, um, and you introduce them and they become absorbed or blended into, quote, Dharma, um, that's a lot easier. Uh, rarely does anyone's eyebrows uh, 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 get raised, or anyone um, have a problem with that. <clears throat> uh, when one tries to introduce or open up uh, more unfamiliar ideas, ideas that are not um, popular or populist in the culture, um, that's more difficult. Um, and when, uh, more than that, actually, when one if you like, add something, uh, so to speak, foreign or new to uh, what we might call Dharma, um, that when it's foreign and new, that addition is much more conspicuous as an addition um, than when, uh, when there are sort of ideas that people are familiar with from their culture. Um, it's still happening. It's still an addition. There is still an addition, um, even when it's not obvious. In when we add um, ideas about neuroscience or <coughs> or modern psychotherapy ideas or, or whatever, um, it's still happening. Nevertheless, something is being added. It's just not so obvious. Um, add to that this um, other idea that um, uh, that the ideas we are using are not truth claims. They don't refer to realities. And that is very difficult sometimes for people to get their heads around as well because we're used to saying, used to hearing it's like this or it's like that or thinking that Dharma concepts refer to realities, um, etc. Or <clears throat> certainly when we think about neuroscience or modern psychotherapy ideas, we almost always, almost without without exception, there's the assumption and the message that these are realities. Um, so it's it's quite difficult sometimes to hear something or to try and present something as these ideas don't have truth claims in the way that we usually operate um, with truth claims and truth assumptions. So unfamiliar, and I'm, I'm aware of that and certainly aware of the difficulties in trying to present all this. 
um, but but still, I insist, um, absolutely insist, that um, in our Dharma, uh, in in, other words, in your Dharma, in uh, your practice, and in your life, um, fantasy and image is already involved. Is already involved in Dharma, in practice, and life. Um, I absolutely insist on that, and I also insist that this is not a bad thing, not at all a bad thing. It's uh, inevitable, and it's important, and it, and it may well, I would say, be necessary. Certainly necessary for to galvanize um, in relation to practice and Dharma, and to be inspired in life, and to have meaningfulness. All that's necessary. So it's not a bad thing. Um, we need to recognize both the general fact that it's operating and also the, the particular ways that it's operating for us, that fantasy and image operate for us and the kinds and directions um, in which fantasy and image operate and, 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 and mix in with our life and, and impel our life. So we need a double level recognition, general and a, and a more individual particular. And out of that, um, we, we need to kind of um, expand a, a psychology that can talk about that and, inc- and include all that, recognize it and be sensitive to it and be wise in relationship to it instead of just not admitting it, not seeing it or trying to cut it because it's papancha. Um, so we need to include then in this psychology, in this conceptual framework, we need to include ideas such as soul-making or eros that are not yet articulated in what we call dharma. Uh, to me, that seems an, a necessity, a, a, you know, something that's called for. Uh, when we uh, look at our life and the movements of our life, and and uh, with a psychology that's too simplistic, it's it doesn't serve us. Doesn't serve the totality of our beings. So for instance, well, that's just Vedana leading. Um, so when you talk about eros or that kind of thing as um that's just vedana leaving you're just chasing the pleasant or running away from the unpleasant or that's just papancha um when talk about the imaginal or fantasy or um that's just um uh, you know what motivates us is is either this uh, movement governed by vedana towards pleasant and unpleasant or trying to some people teach that uh Basically, we get attached to things like views because we're trying to shore up um, this self that somehow deep down we know is not real. Therefore, we attach, we cling to this and that to try and shore up my views, my uh, my habits and all that. But that kind of psychology, this self-shoring up or the Vedana leading or that, you know, that's what's going on. Um, or it's just meta. I've touched on this before. This is this is in a way it's not sophisticated enough. It's not. It's a little bit poor as a psychology. I mean, valuable as it is, we've talked about this. Um, we need something richer, deeper, wider, um, a psychology that can accommodate and delineate between uh, the kinds of things that we're talking about. So, from our perspective, the movement to seek to increase pleasure or decrease um, unpleasant sensations 
when that is the prime intention of, of, of a movement of body or mind, and when that's the prime driver to, to maximize uh, or increase um, pleasant sensations and decrease unpleasant ones, without, when that's the prime driver and there isn't this richness of, of what we call imaginal <coughs> perception, then that is axiomatically, in the way that we're talking about, that's not... Uh, that that won't be soul making. That's not um, creating soulfulness. It will not do that. It's not eros. It's what we might call craving, as I said. And but to think too much that way, or to really regard as if that's the thing that mostly moves us as human beings, it's um, that's really really uh, poor psychology. Um, but it's interesting. So so this kind of. Uh, need to uh, expand the psychology a little bit and, and enrich the psychology a little bit. It's not just Dharma, uh, in the Dharma uh, 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 transmission, in the Dharma circles, but it's in the wider culture too. So I had a chemo, uh, an oncologist until, uh, until recently, and uh, he prescribed me the standard course of chemotherapy for my condition, but he basically, um, I think he basically thought, it wouldn't work because of the because of the disease I had and where w- w- the stage it was at and all that. It wouldn't work, so um, there was no point trying to do any more chemotherapy. Plus, it was also potentially dangerous, and it wasn't a risk that he was prepared to take <coughs> for different reasons. Um, a that it might not do more harm than good. I think is what he thought. Um, but in trying to persuade me to sort of give up uh, wanting to experiment a little bit with uh, longer and more chemotherapy, etc. Um, he, he would often say something like, "What? you know, it's about quality of life. Come off the chemo and, and you'll have, um, just enjoy the duration of the rest of your life with a better quality of life. And then he would, he would often say this, and I often had the feeling that he and I understood very different things about what constituted a, a good quality of life. Um, uh, but then he would also often say quality of life and then say a bit more and often he would say go on holiday you know and go on holiday so he, he would often say that um, as part of his sort of package of what quality of life meant <coughs> um, and what I was uh, could could do if I was off chemo as I could go on holiday and uh, it's probably partly reflecting just that, that as an NHS oncologist he was probably grossly over overworked and overstretched and, and probably was um, des- desperately uh, needing a break and craving a holiday, um, but he didn't say quality of life so you can go on pilgrimage. Um, in uh, a medieval peasant in 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 Christendom, in in uh, um, uh, or a Tibetan Buddhist even nowadays, or a Muslim nowadays, um, if they were told you probably only have uh, you know some months to live. Um, one of the responses might be, uh, then from the doctor saying that, then, you know, take the time off the medication, you you might be able to make a pilgrimage. Um, they, you know, very different mindset. What's the difference? Well, one, um, typically, I mean, this isn't black and white, but one uh, desires or seeks a reduction in stress, an increase in pleasure, perhaps seeking out um, novel or exciting experiences, um, whereas the pilgrimage, uh, in contrast to holiday, pilgrimage is 
a movement of soul making, an actual movement that is soul making, um, an embodiment, if you like, of eros, something we do with our bodies that is an erotic movement that brings soul making. And it's interesting, you know, different cultures, ancient and uh, contemporary, religious and secular, um, tend to assume a universality of wants, um, that people want this or that, or everyone, most people want this. Um, In the modern secular West, um, the choice we have of how we, uh, you know, what we seek, um, is actually wider, and perhaps wider than at any point in in, in the whole history of, of, of humanity. Um, that's one of the things actually characterizes um, modernism and well, secularity, particularly, and also consumerism. Um, so the choice is wider, and and also individuality um, has a certain. Uh, premium in in uh, modern secular western culture so it's acknowledged that the individual the person has a, has a, a choice in uh, that needs to be respected um in to a certain extent in in what's important to them but still there's there's usually a presumption um of that most people will conform to um what's uh, you know we could say popular secular values um and that what you'll want is a holiday, um, as opposed to something like a pilgrimage. <clears throat> and so with all this, and all this um, talk about Eros and exploration of Eros, I really want to emphasize, again, you know, something you've heard in relation to the Dharma before, I'm sure. Don't believe these teachings... Uh, the Buddha said, "Ehi pasiko," um, to to be seen, for, to come and ehi paso uh, means to come and see. Um, there, for one to come and see um, for oneself through practice, find out. It's not a matter of belief. So, find out regarding to Dharma teachings. And um, now, you've heard that before. I'm sure if you've been practicing for a while, and for a lot of people, that's the attraction of the Dharma over, I say, other religions, <coughs> is that message. But what often happens for practitioners is we see something a few times. For example, though that craving leads to suffering, and we hear these teachings about desire, etc. And something generalizes um, quite quickly because it's a message we get a lot, and we actually stop questioning. We stop the um, breadth and the depth and the radicality of our question. We stop looking further. And so, in a way, we kind of program our perception and we only see this. So, I've asked, you know, sometimes a, a, a crowd, an audience, um, are you sure that um, desire leads to suffering? And um, and people just nod, yeah, absolutely, I'm sure, because I've checked it out and everything. And uh, and it doesn't always lead to suffering, as sh- shown in the Beauty of Desire talks. Um, so, but there can be this belief that we're um, finding out for ourselves, not believing anything, but actually something... Uh, something gets a little stuck, and we stop the ehipasiko. We stop the um, the movement to come find out, um, to look further, to keep exploring. So, what I want to say with all this, I really want to ask and encourage um, open mindedness, um, exploration, practice, um, that that kind of 
boldness and experimentation and play and willingness to investigate, to question. Um, Eros also, despite all these definitions and how unfamiliar it all might sound, etc., um, Eros is already in imaginal practice. Um, It already, I would say, is an element mixed in with um, any imaginal practice. And as I said before, I've said to people, you know, notice the love with the imaginal figures. It's really important. Imaginal figures always involve love, and sometimes it's really not obvious at all. Sometimes it can look like the opposite. There is love there. And uh, there's many different kinds of love, many different flavors, characters, expressions of love. This is to be noticed in imaginal practice. Um, and it's both ways. The love is both ways. We'll return to this. But wrapped up with the love, related to the love, is not the same as, but related is is a kind of eros. It's not the same as sex. There might be sexuality um, but um, in the imaginal practice, but, um, but there's eros. And when we talk with images and in relation to imaginal figures about opening to them, about feeling that you are somehow in service to this imaginal figure or that you surrender to this uh, yidam or deity or imaginal figure, um, these words, opening to, service, surrender, they either lead to eros, they deepen the eros, or they already imply that eros is there in the relationship. And actually, I, I would say, eros is inherent in imaginal relationship, the relationship with imaginal figures. Eros, so I'm talking about something to, to notice, to, to see there. And uh, eros is not craving, we've said that, we mean different things by that. <clears throat> we'll expand on that. <clears throat> but also in relation to more um, kind of conventional Dharma teachings, it's also... Um, the case that with a little experimentation, uh, you will discover uh, that Eros can lead at times, or it can be um, uh, steered to lead, definitely, to samadhi, to quite deep states of samadhi. Now, a lot of people, this is really surprising, because they consider Eros, sexuality, that kind of thing, as distraction, as defilement. We've talked about this, but I've lost count of how many examples I can I could give um, uh, and I've talked about the one other other retreats, etc., um, where some kind of often very unexpected um, uh, or, or guided um, uh, erotic interaction with an imaginal figure um, in 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 the imaginal practice um, brings about samadhi, and the person is is um, surprised by that by that consequence. The samadhi comes out of this. Um, actually sexual, oftentimes it's very sexual, uh, not, not even just erotic, it's actually really sexual, and very different kind of kinds of sexuality. So some, uh, you know, very sort of soft and loving, and others very um, <coughs> um, uh, sort of d- darker versions, or stronger versions, if you like, um, may or may not even be your usual gender, or sexual orientation, all that uh, that you're uh, used to identifying with, and um, m- many possibilities, and, but samadhi can, I'll return to these, but samadhi um, can often come out of this, 
So there's something that's a very standard Dharma concept coming out of something that looks like it doesn't have anything to do with it. And similarly, Brahmaharas, and hopefully there'll be time on this retreat to talk about the link um, and the relationship between Eros and the Brahmaharas. Um, but I think I gave uh, at least one example in uh, that series of talks in Ecology of Love, where actually quite a, a dark, um, lusty, and, and quite strange, um, or by most people's stands, strange kind of um, sexual image um, actually deepened and opened the flow of compassion, the second Brahmahara, very, very potently. So maybe we'll return to that later, the relationship between Eros and the Brahmaharas. Um, And continuing our sort of delineations here and and standard Dharma, etc. And Eros. Eros, we've already said, is much more than sexuality and sexual energy interaction. We're not equating them. But it is... Or it may be the case, let's um, put it that way, that exploring eros and um, the imaginal in practice, in meditation, it may bring with it or lead to um, an opening up of um, a level and a breadth of questioning regarding sexuality in general, one's own sexuality and one's attitudes, etc. It may well just open up that whole field and also the, 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 the experience of sexual energies too. So we will uh, return to that. Um, uh, we'll return to that later. Um, so just making a few more little delineations. Um, I think I've said this before. I, I'm not equating eros with love. <clears throat> so love is one of those poor words nowadays. Um, it's it's come to have to mean so much, this poor word, to do so much work, to span so much territory. Um, and we still use it, but... Um, it's a, it's a lovely word, um, but oftentimes there's problems with just how much it, 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 it has come to mean or include. There's too much for one word. So oftentimes, people, two people are using that same word in relation to each other and saying it to each other, and they actually mean quite different things. Um, they're referring entails different experiences for them, different perceptions of the other, different feelings, different sense of obligations that come out of it. I love you, therefore I'm obliged what? Um, Guarantees are different, the um, commitments are different. Um, But if we say, for now, um, if we use the word love to just mean something like care, care for someone's well-being on every level, then it's clear if we just look at some uh, distinctions now, some delineate some uh, <coughs> distinctions between different terms. It's clear, of course, that w- we can have um, sex, even ple- pleasurable sex, enjoyable sex, uh, without love and without eros. So the, I would say, hopefully, there's some respect at least. But um, but uh, sex is possible, and for a lot of people, maybe, maybe it's common, um, without love or without eros. Um, it's also possible that you can have um, sex with love, with care, um, but without eros. In other words, there's sexual arousal, sexual pleasure, <coughs> etc., um, and, then, and, and, and care for this person, maybe sometimes even a lifetime of care. Um, in partnership, but actually this person is uh, 
maybe never was or um or is no longer um there's no longer soul making in 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 the sex uh, there's no longer the aliveness of the erotic and the imaginal in bed so then there's sex with love but without eros and of course you can have love care without sex or eros you can care deeply for someone and with with meta etc but um the this other that i uh, give my meta to wish well etc care deeply about their well-being um is not alive for me as a soul making image they don't constitute that for my psyche um and if it's not clear by now hopefully it is we can have eros in an erotic connection with someone um without with or without um sex or sexual contact <clears throat> but i would say uh, so all those permutations but i would say it's not possible to have eros without love so that's quite interesting it's not possible to have eros without love because eros leads brings stimulates uh, opens a perception of uh more and more so in fact as it goes on a perception of the beauty and the divinity more and more as i said it, this grows the divinity of of the um object of the erotic object eros opens a perception of beauty and divinity and we can't help but love what appears to us deeply beautiful and divine uh so i would say it's actually not possible to have eros in the way that we're talking about it without love <clears throat> so implicit in 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 all that we've just said is that <clears throat> in a way eros is actually always involved with and involves um the imaginal and psyche in the way that i used that word before and so where there's eros the imaginal is <coughs> instigated um um invoked inflamed uh, deepened widened etc brought alive um psyche is expanded um enriched deepened complicated and and vice versa where there's where there's the imaginal where uh, where that's operating where something is an image eros as i said already is <coughs> inherently wrapped up in that in the relationship with that image um and also logos too so there's an ideation there's some kind of idea that's wrapped up with um an erotic uh, uh perception of someone or something um <clears throat> conceptuality logos um supports uh, to whatever extent it can it supports that eros uh so <sighs> mentioned this eros psyche logos dynamic as one of one of our list of, of things that we talked about i'm going to talk much more about this but um what it means as i said is that the eros wanting more um ex deepens and creates discovers more to the image gives more imaginal dimensions imaginal complexity imaginal facets and faces to this beloved other and and in that the idea the logos also of this other um expands and that um eurocyclic that soul making dynamic then comes back because the object then is more beautiful more deep more rich more um 
juicy, more enticing, more complex, more it offers me more. It offers more um, to for the psyche, so to speak, to move into, to expand, but also for um, the eros to find attractive and to want more of. So there's there's this way that it kind of just um, potentially, infinitely, in a way, just expands. We're going to talk a lot more about that. There's this mutual insemination, mutual fertilization, growth, expansion, deepening, widening, com- complexifying, complicating, enriching of eros, psyche, logos. They all <coughs> help each other, if you like. They're all involved with and involve each other. And that's the eros, psyche, logos dynamic. That implies... The the, the 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 fact of that as as a, as a fact of our soul of the way the soul works implies several things. One is that um, <clears throat> to say another way what we've already said is that eros is liberating um, in in different ways. Uh, so let's unpack that just a little bit now. Um, when there is craving or clinging or greed or aversion. Um, we can see, in our phenomenological approach, we can see when there's clinging towards something or pushing away or craving, whatever, grasping, aversion, it tends to solidify the perception of that object that we're clinging to. Um, so there's a solidification of the pro- of that object, and also kind of stagnation. Like it really, we we only s- stagnation of the perception. We only see it this one way, um, or rather, it gets stagnate, uh, or or the perception gets um, what's the word like um, more solid or more more one way, often in a negative way or or a particular flatly enticing way. Um, now we know all that from dependent origination. Um, and the study of that uh, in practice, um, through ways of looking, etc. And the reverse is also true, that when when a certain perception is solidified, it tends to stimulate the, um, the clinging. So these two go together, the solidification, solidification, stagnation, if you like, of perception and clinging. Um, and even when we see, to a certain extent, even when we see uh, something as impermanent or flowing, there can still be a kind of stagnation um, of the perception, a kind of one-dimensionality and a certain uh, unidirectionality of the perception. So it's stagnated, this perception, in a certain way. The solidification and stagnation of perception are the exact opposites of what happens with this eros-psyche-logos dynamic, um, or their... Uh, if you like, an arresting of that dynamic, of the eros-psycho-logos dynamic, in the way that opens out um, the perception, the imaginal perception, the sense of, the knowing of, the intimacy with, and the idea of the object, the erotic object. Um, As I said, there's an infinite potential there for this mutual insemination, fertilization, expansion, enriching, deepening, to... um, Create, discover more of the beauty, more of the dimensionality, more of, more faces of, more dimensions uh, of this uh, beloved, this erotic object. Um, so it's the opposite of stagnating or solidifying the perception. And that we're going to talk a lot about this, but that that kind of infinite potential, just infinitely um, increasing or expanding or complexifying or um, 
complicating or um, enriching <coughs> the object. Uh, there's much more to say about that, and it doesn't certainly doesn't happen as a smooth process. You know, it happens a in stages, and b often with um, hiccups and obstacles that that need to be uh, addressed or negotiated or made aware of, etc. Uh, but what that means is that Eros, in its capacity to open perception uh, and see also image as image, is very different than um, grasping, aversion, clinging, craving. It has the opposite effect. Uh, not doesn't solidify, doesn't stagnate. Um, actually, it liberates the object. Its effect is to liberate the perception <coughs> in, in, a, in a certain sense. Last thing for now. Um, so you've—I can't remember now if I've said it, but it may be dawning on you that um, I did say it, didn't I? That there's a small definition of eros, as we said, that eros is this wanting more, uh, what we call contact, connection, intimacy, experience, knowing, penetration, opening to, um, uh, of of the erotic other, of the imaginal uh, erotic object of something, um, and that's what we call in the small definition. That there's also, because of the way that psyche and logos and image and the imaginal and soul-making and that whole soul-making dynamic, the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, are actually implicated, or the natural tendency of what eros does, it will start to involve them, and it will start to expand, unless it's inhibited. Um, we can also kind of talk about eros and imply all that, really imply that whole dynamic, that whole constellation. So that in the small definition, we're really talking about eros as one element of that eros psyche logos, uh, that soul-making dynamic. Or sometimes when I use the word eros, I'll actually be using it in a way that implies that whole erotic imaginal constellation, implying that whole dynamic, that whole expansion of that dynamic um, <clears throat> and everything that's involved in the erotic imaginal aliveness, activation, that process, um, the way it constellates self, other world, etc., which we'll come back to. So this is just one of those things. Um, again, I probably apologize in advance. I predict that um, I'll be going back and forth between these two meanings, a more small meaning, and sort of saying something like, when Eros gets blocked, it becomes craving, or something like that. Um, but, uh, or when when the um, when the Logos uh, doesn't expand enough, then, uh, you know, there's problems. Um, but it should probably be pretty clear, you know, uh, in, in that. Um, another implication there is that eros in itself, so to speak, the small definition, um, is is neither inherently, um, intrinsically positive or negative, good or bad. Um, it's just this wanting, <coughs> as in more contact, uh, more opening, more penetration, more intimacy, more experience, more knowing of all that with the erotic object. So in itself, it's neither here nor there. Um, of course, there is no in itself. We can't extricate it as something that um, uh, you know doesn't stim stimulate this whole movement of eros psyche logos, this whole dynamic interwoven dynamic 
or the, uh, something that is trying to stimulate that dynamic but is blocked in different ways. So there really is no in itself. What, uh, whether Eros is um, fertilizing for the soul, is soul-making, is enriching, is beautiful, is opening and opening up the sense of existence or not, <coughs> and therefore desirable or not, um, is, is really dependent on what happens in relationship to um, that whole dynamic, or how that whole dynamic is able to unfold. We'll talk a lot about this. So, in itself, it's um, neither, if there isn't in itself, Eros is neither actually good or bad, positive or negative, it's just this thing. But oftentimes we'll be talking in a bigger definition, um, bigger implication. Um, when a realism comes in, and I really don't see this image as an image. I really take it as literal or, or a, 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 a truth, or this idea that's wrapped up in the imaginal and, and the erotic object, um, and I take that logos as really being true. Then um, problems come in, and eros becomes craving. When there's realism, um, eros leads to craving. Related to what I said before about the solidification, etc. We'll come back to this. Um, but there are other kind of um, problems that can come in. Um, uh, there, there can be a, a cramping or a blocking or um, uh, a limiting in different ways, either of the eros, of the libido, if you like, or, or of the psyche, um, of the imaginal function, or of the logos. So when any of these elements is cramped, blocked, limited, then it, it gives rise to problems in the um, in the uh, relationship with the with the with the other with the erotic object. And we're going to um, look at this in much more detail um, as we go on. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.